0: Good morning, everybody. Today begins our sermon series, Roots. And we're really excited about this sermon series because we believe it is critically important for you to understand
1: the things that you believe. So many people believe whatever their mama told them or whatever
0: they read in a book somewhere and they don't dig deep and understand the doctrines of our faith. And so for the next eight weeks, that's what we're gonna be discussing. This morning, my buddy, Stephen Aiken is gonna be preaching for us. And so I'd love for you guys to welcome Stephen as he comes and preaches the week one. Of roots.
1: Good morning. Like Mark just said, my name's Stephen Aiken. It's an honor to be here. Um, roots doctrine—that's kind of my thing. I love it. I'm a nerd that way, and uh, I'm all about this kind of stuff. And this is my—it's been my privilege to the last three years in a row to kick off the first series of a doctrine or a roots type series. Um, so, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. If you guys remember, last time I was spoke, was, was, who was here last time I spoke? Probably be easier, who wasn't? Um, just so everybody gets their hands going, let's just do it. Wave your hands in the air. So, um, my name's Stephen Aiken. like I said again, and I only became a Christian about five years ago. So what happened is, I thought that I was too smart to believe in this Christianity stuff. I thought that uh, it was for the weak-minded and... Uh, if you had any sort of intelligence, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be believing this kind of stuff. Well, it wasn't until my wife decided to, to take my kids to church that I decided to go on a mission to, to you know, basically tell her that she was wrong or see, you know, see if, if it was true or not. Um, before then, I, I kind of considered myself agnostic. I, I didn't know if there was a God or not. I wasn't quite sure, but I knew that you didn't know either, and no one really knew, And so uh, that's kind of how I lived it. Well, on my journey, on my studies, I have realized that it was true, and uh, that the Bible is true, and there really was a man named Jesus, and he really did some awesome stuff. And I'm going to tell you something about that today. But this is a fitting way to start a root series because this is how I had to begin my journey, and this is how you're going to have to begin your understanding of doctrine and beliefs, is that it's all predicated on this being true, Right? Because everything we believe comes from this Bible, so if we can't trust the Bible, then, ha- then all the other things, they don't, they don't line up. So the question for me is, that can this book be trusted? Can we trust it? This book here, let me tell you a little bit about it. This book is the number one best-selling book of all time in the history of the world. It's so far and away the best-selling book that the New York Times doesn't even put it on the best-seller list anymore. But it's actually, a, uh, it's actually 66 different books, so it's more accurately described as a library. Um, and it, doesn't, it isn't organized chronologically, it isn't, it isn't written in the order that things happen. It's organized by, by topic, by genre, much like a regular library is. So the Old Testament is the laws, history, wisdom and poetry, and then the prophets. And that's how it's organized. The New Testament starts with the Gospels, which are basically just biographies of Jesus' life. And then it, and it finishes with epistles, which are letters written to a large audience um, that circulated throughout the early churches. So the question is, what should we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about the Bible? It's important to understand what we believe um, because like I said, all the other beliefs are based on it. Now people have a lot to say, a lot to say about the Bible. People do out there, if you haven't been paying attention to the internet and and the news, people have a lot to say about the Bible but no one really listens to what the Bible has to say about itself. They They have a lot of things to talk about but they don't really know what the Bible says itself. This scripture here that I'm about to show you um, is probably the best summary of what you should believe about the Bible, what we believe, uh, what I know Mark believes. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The all scripture is God-breathed. Now, there's a lot of guys out there with some fancy college degrees that will make fun of you for believing that. It's just true. They will. But there's also a lot of really smart guys with a lot of fancy degrees that are Christian who believe that as well. So the question is, what do you believe? Do you believe the Bible is all true? Do you believe it's a book of, of you know, good stories and stuff, but we can get principles from it, but it's not literally true? Like the, the Noah's Ark thing didn't really happen. Uh, that was probably a metaphor for something. I mean, do you really believe that the, that the Bible is all the way true? Because let me tell you, over 300 times in the Bible, it says that it's from God. And God is perfect. So either it's from God and it's all perfect and all true, or it's not. It can't be from God and be imperfect. Does that make sense? So it's either it's either all true or it's not from God. How do we know, though? This is the question. How do we know? How do we know? See, churches have a really good way of teaching you what to believe. But no one's teaching people why they should believe it. So that's what I want to do today. We can know that this book is from God. And we can know that there are lots of other books, religious books, and we can know that those aren't. And God gave us away. He gave us away. Read this right here with me. I'll show you what I'm talking about. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Who's that talking about? Jesus, right? So here's the good part. Does anybody know where this is located in the Bible? Yeah, this is awesome. (laughs) This is Isaiah 53.5. This was written 700 years before Jesus was ever walking on the earth. This is how you can be sure that the Bible is from God. He told you this is how you can trust that people are speaking from me. They're going to predict things that are going to come true. It's called prophecy. And in the Old Testament, the criteria is you have to be right 100% of the time. To be considered a true prophet. And no other religious book, none of them, I look. They don't have prophecy. So who can know the future but God, right? So this is what God did throughout the Bible. He, he, uh, he gave us prophecy. So if you just to recap, if case this is your first time in church ever, um, man and God created man to be in communion with him in relationships. we were hanging out in this really nice garden. God only gave us one rule, we broke it. Separate us from God and man from then on. Well, right away, God says, you know what? I'm going to fix this problem that, that you've separated me. And he starts predicting how he's going to fix it. He's going to bring up someone that they, to they was, they was be known as the Messiah. And he was going to come and he was going to fix this problem. So over 400 times in the, in the Old Testament, there's predictions and descriptions of this coming Messiah. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to read all 400 of these prophecies. So I hope you brought a lunch. No, I'm just kidding. can't do that. There's no time. Um, So let's just read a few of them. I picked out just some that I thought were cool, some that you may have heard of before. So let's start here. Um, This one is Isaiah 7, 14. It tells you how the Messiah is going to come and how you can recognize him when he comes. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, from the Christmas songs, everybody knows what Emmanuel means? God with us. So it says, here's a sign that the Messiah is coming. The pregnant's going to give birth to a son. You're like a pregnant, a, a, a pregnant virgin. That's, that's uh, that's strange. You're like yes, that's why it's a sign, and she's so going to give birth to a son, and we're going to and we're going to call him Emmanuel. We're going to call him God. Pretty cool. So the next one uh, tells us where this Messiah is going to be born. This is in Micah 5:2. This is right along, written right along the same time Isaiah was. or about 700. They were peers in that time. Micah 5:2 it says, "But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah," Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now this, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and this word here, from old, from ancient times, literally means from eternity past. So it says, out of you is going to come a ruler whose origins are from eternity past. Who's the only one who's lived from eternity past? God. So it says God's coming And it's going to be in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And by the way, did you know that there was two Bethlehems? He's so specific, he picked the Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There's another one. So that's pretty cool. So God tells us how we can know he's coming, that he was coming, where he'd be born. But here's what's most important. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 because we're going to park here for just a few minutes. Um, Isaiah 53. I'll give you a second. Because this, this is probably my most uh, favorite uh, scripture in all the Bible, actually. I love this. I love it. Because it pretty much sums the whole Bible up right here. Everybody there? Stop me if, I, if you're not there. I'm going on. Okay, here we go. Verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. What does it mean if you're cut off from the land of the living? That means you're killed. It means he died. It says he, he cut off from the land of the living, and why? For the transgression of my people he was punished. Verse 9 says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This is interesting because, remember, this is Isaiah. This is a prophecy. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his grave. What does that mean? How does that, how's that even work? Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And after, after he came off the cross, a rich guy from local, his name was Joseph of Arimathea, he let Jesus borrow his tomb. So Jesus was buried with the wicked and with the rich in his death. It says, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He said he was punished, he didn't do anything wrong. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is when it gets good. It says, after he has suffered, after he dies, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, after you after you suffered, you're cut off from the light of, land of the living. And it says, you're going to see the light of life and be satisfied. How is that possible? He's going to be resurrected. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. If that's not Jesus Christ, who's that? I want you to tell me who that is. Who's got that kind of resume other than Jesus? Here's what you need to know. There's like 48 main like messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Do you have any idea what the odds are of somebody fulfilling 48 prophecies? Neither do I, because that number's way too big. But I do have the number for somebody fulfilling just eight. Here's some mathematicians who got together and they said, what are the likelihood, what are the odds if somebody would fulfill just eight of these 48 main and 400 major? The odds are one chance and a hundred million billion. Now that's a big number, right? Just so to give you an idea what that, what, how big that number is, if you took a hundred million billion silver dollars it would fill the state of Texas, the entire state, two feet deep with silver dollars and the odds are that one of those silver dollars was painted black and that somebody went blindfolded, spun them around and throughout the whole state of Texas they reached down and grabbed the black one. It's mathematically impossible. And that's just eight. Jesus fulfilled 48 of them. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means God wrote a book. That's what it means. It means God wrote a book. And you need to read it. You need to know what it says. You need to know what it doesn't say. People are going to come to you, they're going to tell you things, and they're going to be like, well, I don't know. They're in the Bible, they're not in the Bible. You don't know because you don't know. You need to read this book. You need to study it and you you need to know what it says and what it doesn't say. Because God wrote a book and He wants you to read it. I have a video here that I want you to see. This is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, of why you need to read the Bible as a Christian.
0: But You say on on a couple of shows that I saw that a lot of Americans are too stupid, they just don't understand what's going on and therefore they make fallacious decisions. Do You feel comfortable saying, "Look, you American people, most of you are dunderheads, and you just don't understand." And I do. You do feel comfortable? Yes, I with do.
2: That? Okay, I absolutely, absolutely. Sixty <laughs> percent of the, sixty percent of the American people, Bill, believe the Noah's Ark story is literally true. Okay, it, well, that's I don't know, know any of those. People, I don't know I, how to.
0: You know, I think they found Noah's Ark on some mountain in Turkey.
2: Didn't they find it Go, up there? But but that's in your Bible. I mean, if you're a religious person and the Bible is written by God. Why isn't why is stuff in the Bible untrue? Well, because I mean, it's allegorical, was Bill. Story. I'm sure you but know. Your, it, I'm sure you know it's, it's in,
0: allegorical and these well, are parables and they're designed I, to 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 oh, teach really. you a greater truth that it apparently has eluded
2: you. But you well, know, well, it's well, not okay. a literalist well, what a, what a, what interpretation what of the, the Bible. Oh, I thought it was the Word of God. I thought it was literal, and a lot of religious people do. Okay, what about the part in the Bible that says if you see your neighbor working on a Sunday, you should kill him? Is that a parable or is that literal?
0: I, I think that's probably uh, what. I, I don't know that parable. Can you? Is that Romans, Ecclesiastes? Where did that? come it's
2: from? It's not a parable. No, no. It's a. It, it's in Deuteronomy. It's a law. It's a law. If you see your neighbor working on Sunday, you should kill him. You, you got to yes, kill him. It doesn't sound like a parable okay. to me. But if it's your perfect holy book written by God, why is there stuff in it that makes no sense? Well, let me break this to immoral?
0: You. Let me break this to you. I respect the Bible, and I and I take it as an allegorical book. But I'm a Christian, so the New Testament is what. Uh, I believe in, and the Old Testament, <laughs> written by it. prophets. I love the you way know, the Christians.
2: Right, but, but, but they're both written by God, right? No, I mean, God didn't sit down and write, and write it. They book. were written
0: by prophets, and they were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and God, real human this... beings who actually I... took it down.
2: Right, we're talking about the Old Testament now. You know, I, I know all the Christians want to get behind the happy half of the Bible. What do
1: think about that? Who, who, who do you think won that one? Who, who ended up looking like the dunderhead? I think Bill O'Reilly did. You know where I got that from? I got that off an atheist website. I like to, I like to peruse them because I was, I was there. I like to see what they're talking about and what they're, what they're using against us. They use this video to make fun of Christians. Let, 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 me, let me just address something real quick. Did God tell you, and he said Deuteronomy, does it say in Deuteronomy that you should kill your neighbor if you see him working on Sunday? How many think that that's in the Bible? How many think that that's not in the Bible? That's in the Bible. It's in the Bible more than one time. It actually does say to do that. What? What are we doing here then, right? Let me me tell you something. You can't take one little piece of the Bible and completely take it out of context and apply it to everything. Here's what it says. It says that the Jewish people, which God was going to bring this messianic, this messiah from, he, he chose a people group that they, that, that person was going to come from, and he isolated them, and he gave them like 613 or so laws with the Ten Commandments, 623, I believe the number is, laws that they had to do. It was only for the Jewish people. They had to be, remain separate and holy and pure people. So if, not for Gentiles, if a Jewish person saw a Gentile working on Sunday, they didn't kill him. It was only applied to the Jewish people. But even still... If you if you would have continued watching this, you can look it up. Uh, you can Google YouTube. It's it's uh, Bill O'Reilly, Bill Mayer, religious debate too. It goes on for quite a while. He goes on to say that uh, that we we blow off our book, all the all the crazy stuff. We just blow it off. And the other religious people, the Islamic terrorists and stuff, that say that they're that they're doing things for God. They actually take it seriously. And if we took our book seriously, we would be doing all that crazy stuff too. Here's the thing: we don't. We don't don't kill people for working on Sundays anymore. It's not because we blow the book off. It's because of a man named Jesus. He came and he changed everything. He came and he told us in Matthew that he was coming not to abolish the law, not to get rid of these laws, but to fulfill them. He came and he lived the perfect life. All those laws he kept. Right? And here's the other thing. He he says that 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 the... How come things are in the Bible that are immoral? Listen, God is the standard for morality. He he sets the standard. If he does it, it's moral. If he, he is love, if he does something, it is loving by definition. Here's what you need to know. I want you to know what the Bible is not, okay? This is what the Bible is not. This is what you have this blank on your handout. The Bible is not a book of morals. It's not an allegorical book that we're supposed to take principle from. It's not a book about good people and bad people and we're supposed to do what the good people did. That's not what this is. This book isn't about good people and bad people. This book's about bad people and one good person and his name's Jesus. And we're so bad that we killed the only one good person in the Bible. And you're like, no man, there's lots of good people in the Bible. What about Noah? Noah what What's the first thing Noah do when he got off the ship? Got drunk, passed out in the tent. What was Moses doing before he uh, he's led the, the, uh, the Exodus? Killing a guy, killed a dude, murdered an Egyptian. Paul, the, perhaps the greatest Christian minister uh, missionary. What was he doing before he became Paul the missionary? He was living as Saul. He was killing Christians, killing people. David, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after another man's wife. Right? This isn't a book of good people and bad people, and we're supposed to do what the good people did. It's We're bad, and Jesus is good. So your next blank is, this is what the Bible is all about. The whole Bible, everything, not just the happy half, the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. It is. And if you read through the Bible, understanding that looking for Jesus, you'll see them all through. Like it starts with a prediction of him coming, goes all the way through, just tells you, you know, like foreshadowing, like what he was going to do when he became a sacrifice. The whole, the whole Bible is a book. It's a story of salvation. And, and the hero of the book is the Savior, the one who provides that salvation. That's what the Bible's all about. So here's what I want to do. I want to recap. Let me recap the Bible in itself and kind of what the message from today. And the best way I can do this is Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Pretty much sums up what, uh, what I'm talking about today. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you could read past that. And, you, you, could, and it would, you, would, you would miss it. You would miss what death on a cross is. Death on a cross was so painful, they actually had to invent a word for it to describe it. Excruciating. That word literally means from the cross. That's how painful crucifixion was. It, it began with a, with a flogging. Like, oh, what's a flogging? He just got a whipping. No, it was this leather strap with nine leather straps, and at the end of it were pieces of bone, metal, and glass. And they would beat him with it. And there's like reports, you can read historical accounts of people whose floggings, the, the, it would dig into the back, and, pe- and it would rip out, and you, people have actually seen like pieces of rib and stuff coming out with them. It was, people often died from the flogging alone. So Jesus endured that flogging, and then he had to walk and carry a cross up to, uh, up to the place where he'd be crucified. Now a lot of people think that they carried the whole cross. All they, actually, what they did was they carried just the, 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 the sidebar here. And they had the straight-up piece, was already at the crucifixion sites. So it was probably like 100 pounds he had to carry. And uh, obviously he fell, he wasn't able to carry it, so he got up, he gets there, and then they, they nail you to the most sensitive nerve centers of your whole body, your hands and your feet. They put seven-inch spike nails, archaeologists have discovered these, seven-inch spike nails through your hands and your feet. And then you hang there. And what they do is they bend your knees, and they put a little platform down for your feet, right? And, then they, and they nail you like that. So when, when you're hanging on a cross... You die by asphyxiation. You die, you actually suffocate to death. So what happens is, while you're resting, you, can't, you can breathe in, but you can't exhale. Your lungs are full of air, but you can't breathe out. So you have to push up on your feet in order to get the air out. So imagine your back's all torn up from, from the flogging, and, you're, and you're, you're about, you need some air, so you have to breathe out. So you have to slide up, and your back's sliding against the wood. I mean, this is a horrible way to die. And you do that back and forth until eventually you, you don't have the strength to lift yourself up and you die and you suffocate. This could take a really long time. So why, why would he do that? Why would he, why would he endure that? It tells us why throughout the whole Bible that we separated ourselves from God when we sinned, and you have too. Everybody sinned, and you're separated from God, and you're, you're not going to be able to live. You're not supposed to do what the good guys do, and you're going to be good, and you, if you're better than most, then you get to get in one day. It's not that. There's only one way, which there's actually two ways. There's two ways to get into heaven and be reconciled back to God. you got to be perfect, or you're going to need some help. And Jesus said, God said, you know what? You're not going to be able to do it. My, my, all those laws were just a demonstration of how holy and righteous I am, how strict my standards are. No one's going to be able to keep them. But I want you to know how holy I am. So That's what all those laws were about, and how serious I am. Uh, I take them, and God said, "Don't work on Sunday." And if and if they did, what would happen? He, they would he, they would be killed, because that's what sin is. Here's the thing: sin always requires death. It does. Throughout all the laws, all of them required death. Some of them required you to die, and the ones that you didn't have to die for, they had to kill an animal for. But all sin requires death, and that's what all that little lamb sacrificing was about. They would come in, the priest would put their hands on, the, on the, the lamb or the goat, and he would die for your sin. And that was all for, foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do. He came, lived a perfect, sinless life, kept all the laws that you couldn't keep. And he died the death that we deserved in our place for our sins. But what's cool, and how we can know that this is, di- this is different than other religions, and this fact separates us from everyone else, our Savior... We worship an alive, arisen God. Jesus is alive today. He is alive today. And whether or not you believe that does not change the fact that he's alive. He is alive today. And this this fact makes Christianity unlike any other religion in the world. You need to know that of all the world's religions, four of them are based on the teachings of men. Okay? You have Judaism, which is founded on a guy named Abraham. Uh, He lived about 4,000 years ago. He died and he's buried in the city of Hebron right now. Buddhism was founded by the Buddha. He lived, and he died, and his body is buried in India. And then you have Islam, founded by Muhammad. He died, and his body is in Saudi Arabia right now. The point is this. All these leaders have enshrined tombs to them where their, where their, their, their followers come, and they mourn the death of their dead leader and their dead founder. Because that's what you do when somebody important dies. You enshrine their tomb, and it becomes a holy site. And then you have the fourth one, and it's Christianity, found by a man named Jesus. He lived... A couple thousand years ago, he died, but we don't even know where his tomb is. I'm not even sure, because it's empty. He's alive. Jesus is alive. And the resurrection proves this truth. It proves that Jesus, and you know what Jesus did? This is so awesome. Jesus said in the New Testament that the story of the Noah's Ark was true. He said it really happened. He said that Jonah, the guy who got swallowed by a fish, he said that was true too. I don't think it's a coincidence that the two hardest things for me to believe and the hardest things for other people to believe, Jesus said, you know what, let me go ahead and confirm those so you have some confirmation here in the New Testament. Because Jesus is alive and if somebody can come back to, to life, I'm going to trust him. I mean, you can, get, you can get up as a teacher, instructor, fancy doctorate. You can tell me that that didn't happen. I'm going with a guy who, who died and came back to life. And until you can die and come back to life, I'm going to trust in what Jesus said. And Jesus said it was true. So that's how I'm going to roll. We don't just follow a good teacher. We don't just follow a good moral example. We follow a Savior. That's who Jesus is. He's our Savior. And like I said, the Bible is true, and we know it's true by prophecy. But guess what? There's prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. Did you know this? All those other ones, over the 400 that have been fulfilled, you think they're just going to stop getting fulfilled? Let me tell you what. They're going to be fulfilled. And you can take and you can trust that they will at some point. If we keep going in Philippians 2, this is is a prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled, but will be. Verse 9 says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, everybody's knee is going to bow. At some point, you will acknowledge Jesus as being king. You will acknowledge him for his deity. You you have a choice. You can either do it on this earth for salvation, or you can do it after you die for damnation. But it doesn't matter. You're going to bend your knee eventually. It only makes sense that you would do it here. You just recognize who he is. Everybody's knee is going to bow eventually. You will. You will. And whether or not you believe that does not change the fact that your knee will bow. Jesus is Lord and He is King. And you're going to worship Him one day. I would encourage you to do it today for salvation. And here's the thing if what I've just told you sounds foolish to you, you're like, ah, it sounds foolish. I just can't believe that. The Bible also tells us why that is. 1 Corinthians. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying. But for us that believe, it is the power of God. So if that sounds foolish to you, that's why. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for just giving us the opportunity to be be alive here on this amazing creation that that you've given us. And Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for living the life I couldn't live. And thank you so much for coming back to life so I can know that it's true. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we, you've given us ways that we know it's true and we can trust it. God, I ask right now that if you, if there's somebody in here that you wanna save, that you just do it right now. Soften up their hearts, God. Soften them and just, i ask you that you would save them right now. Is there anybody in here that wants that? Lift up your hand for me. I'm not gonna embarrass you, I'm just gonna lead you in a little prayer. Come on, the Bible says today is the day of salvation for you. Anybody? God, I pray to you right now in, in your son's name, Jesus' holy name, that you will be continued to be glorified and exalted and that we will live our lives in a way that reflects the amazing, awesome gift that we have received from Jesus and from you. Help us to be engaged more with you. In your name I pray, Jesus, amen. And I'm I'm not the kind of person who likes to to tell you what to do and not, not help you. So what I've done, I've written a book. It's called New in 92. It helps you. It, it basically explains to you who wrote each New Testament book, um, when they wrote it, who they're writing it to, how you can know it's credible. It's. It'll be out in July, middle of July. Um, I'll get with Mark, maybe see if he has some available. But it'll be on Amazon. You can search for it called New in 92, um, and it takes basically takes you through a reading of the entire New Testament in 92 days, just a few chapters a day. So I would encourage you to do that, um, and I appreciate you for letting me be here.